Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Well, welcome to episode two of Step Into the Story. Uh, When we first conceived of this project, one of the first names that came to my mind of somebody that I wanted to introduce to all of you is a woman named Kitty Murray. Kitty, welcome to Step Into the Story. Thank you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. We've known Kitty and her husband, Bill, for a long time. Um, Our kids went to school together. Bill and Kitty have four sons, and uh, two of those were classmates, one with our daughter, Emily, and one with our son, Philip. Kitty, do you you remember um, that Philip and Andrew both had matching bowl cuts? And... um, were almost doppelgangers of each other. Do you remember those days? Oh, I do. I do. Did they part their hair in the middle for a while too? I, it's I an unfortunate look. Yeah, it was. They're not thanking they us for those times. Now. They were cute. They were. And uh, my wife Ellen got to teach at least some of your kids. And so we've known you for a long time. And then when you became empty nesters, and we did, we didn't have school and sports to see you regularly. We really we really lost track of, of both of you and your family. And then a number of years later, um, I start hearing updates from you that you're living in Clarkston, Georgia. And for our listeners who aren't in the Atlanta area, Clarkston is um, absolutely a unique suburb of Atlanta, unlike any other. Um, Kitty, sketch out for us what's so unique, what's so special about Clarkston, Georgia. Okay, it is it is a beautiful place to live. Um, you know, if you are from Atlanta, you know OTP and ITP inside the perimeter and outside the perimeter. Um, Clarkston is less than half a mile outside the perimeter, so it's actually closer than most people realize to Atlanta. Um, it is 1.4 square mile little city, and it is last I checked, the most densely populated city in all of Georgia. So it's it has some urban feel to it, even though it's basically suburban. Um, there are around 13,000 people who live in that 1.4 square miles, and over half of them are foreign-born. And most of those people who live in Clarkston are resettled refugees or immigrants. So they're, they represent around 45 countries. I think the last count was around 65 languages. So it is this really rich um, melting pot of the entire world. And when we first moved there, people would ask, you know, who who lives in Clarkston? And we would say, well, look at where a crisis is going on in the world. That's who lives in Clarkston. So people who've been resettled because they had to flee violence and war or armed conflict in their own countries. So it's a city of a lot of survivors and heroes. And then there are people who look just like me also, but we're not the majority. So you dropped a little phrase in there. You said, after we moved there, and I'd already mentioned that too, but what's the backstory of that? You are not native to Clarkston. Um, That had to be a massive change from um, the the suburb and the neighborhood that you lived in. Um, How did that come about? Well, um, 
it started with a a conversation. I wouldn't call it an argument, but a but an awkward conversation between my husband and me. <laughs> so uh, when we became empty nesters, we um, moved into downtown. We were living in the city. We were doing just really purposeful work, uh, living in an apartment community. But it was a, a temporary um, situation. We were there, all told, three years. But in the middle of that last year, as we were thinking about relocating, probably buying a house because that just seemed wise. Bill came to me one night, we were eating dinner and he said, Hey, there's something in the Bible that has really disturbed me. And, you know, Bill was a pastor for years. He has a PhD in theology. He's like, that was an odd statement for him to make to me. So I perked up and he said, why is it when the Bible mentions a, three groups of people, widows, aliens, and orphans, and over 200 times, and, and we've both known that for years, why is it when it's so clear that those are people who matter to God and obviously don't matter to a lot of other people, why don't we have any friends who fit that description? And um, to be honest, I was really defensive at first because, you know, we'd been on mission trips and we did projects in our community and we gave a little bit of money and I, you know, and we always laugh. We, we kind of thought we were, you know, more woke than most people our age. And so we, I, I thought we could check all those boxes. And so I said all that and he said, yeah, that's not the same thing as friendships. Like, who are our friends? And we started talking about how our friends were people who were just like us. They looked like us. They were from cultures just like ours. They celebrated like us. They ate and worshiped just like us. And so we made a decision, and it was actually that very night that when we bought what we call our last house, when we bought our next house, it would be in a community that put us in proximity to widows, aliens, and orphans. So widows, women who are destitute in one way or another, and aliens, people who are outsiders, you know, to our communities, and then orphans, people who don't have a support system. And um, we both looked at each other that night, and we said, okay, so... This is important, but where is that in Atlanta? And neither of us really knew at the time. And I remember we both said, well, we'll just have to pray about it. And I don't know if you want to hear the whole story, but the, six months later, we moved to Clarkston. And the way we ended up choosing Clarkston is really more that God, What, as I look back on it, we made a decision we told God we were serious about the decision. He prompted the decision, and then he just opened a door, and we ended up in Clarkston. Hmm. Yeah, when I when I heard you were living there, um, I had dual responses. The first was, that is so cool. I respect that so much. And right on the heels of that, and thanks, God, for asking Kitty and Bill to do that and not Phil and Ellen. Um, that, 
you know, it's one thing to go, how come we don't have any friends that meet this description? Well, let's try to form some relationships. That's a very different decision than saying, let's move there. Let's settle there. Um, how, how was, I mean, did you have any buyer's remorse when you first got there? Or, or was it like, nope, this is the right thing. This is where we belong. We really did hear from God accurately. Can, can you remember the first few weeks there? Yeah. Um, I, this is going to sound uh, disingenuous, but zero buyer's remorse. Like every step of the way, we've lived there eight years now. Um, living in Clarkston, even with some of the challenges, has been our favorite neighborhood experience of our entire lives. Like it's just a it's been great. It doesn't mean we haven't loved other places we've lived. Um, the interesting thing that, you know, you, you really should be talking to my husband because obviously, as you listen to this story, he's the wise one. But we moved in and I tend to be a doer and I'm, I like to stir things up, you know. And so I would have given free reign just jumped in and found some kind of nonprofit and gotten busy, you know. And he said, let's just live here for a while. Let's figure out who our neighbors are, what this community is like, what it needs, you know, where we fit, and let's take our time, which was such a good thing. And we had lived there literally less than a week. We were still in boxes. And a friend brought over a woman named Amina from Somalia. And Amina shared her entire story with us, um, which was a big honor because I don't know that she shares it as freely all the time. But um, basically her story is that she had a dream in which Jesus came to her and told her to follow him a couple of times when she was a young woman in Somalia. And so as a result, she gave her heart to him, but had to leave her home country because, you know, converting to Christianity is uh, punishable by death there or was at the time. And so she fled to Ethiopia. Her husband eventually followed her. They had 10 children. And years and years later, her youngest children were 14-year-old twin girls. Um, they had to go back to Somalia for her father-in-law's funeral. And on the day after the funeral, some local rebels showed up and murdered everyone. And Amina was left for dead. And when the Red Cross came to bury bodies, they discovered she was still living. She still had a pulse. So her, the rest of her journeys, similar to almost every refugee, she was moved to, I'm going to get it wrong, she eventually ended up in Kenya and then eventually to Clarkston. And she'd only been in Clarkston a few years, and she obviously endured massive trauma, like most refugees, um, maybe a little bit more than most just because of the, you know, it was her, her entire family all at once. Um, but she is one of these people who has an undeniable joy in the Lord 
and a drive to serve and love people. So we got to be friends with her. In fact, it's funny, the night that I met her, I met her in the afternoon, and that night I was praying, and I remember saying, Lord, I, I kind of want to be friends with her. Like, but it feels opportunistic. You know, her story was had such an impact on me. Um, and I just didn't know how to go about forging a friendship. Well, I didn't have to worry. Like, she called me the next day. <laughs> we became good friends. And now that I know her, you know, there was a season there where I would say she was one of my best friends in Clarkston. But there are probably 25 people who would say that. Like, she just spreads herself out in love for people. And so what, again, this was God directing our steps. But our immediate uh, engagement in the community was along relational lines. So Amina would call me and say, hey, there's a family and they really need this. And why don't you just go meet them or... Um, one time she called and said, there's a couple and she told us what country they were from. And she said, they're really struggling in their marriage. They need a marriage counselor. You and Bill could do that. Right. And we were like, sure. So we go to the house and, and she tells the man, you go in the other room with him and listen to him. And then she tells the wife, you sit there and listen to her. (laughs) Um, yeah, that wasn't how we'd ever done counseling before <laughs> but she just has this um this wonderful energy and desire to care for others and so really we just drafted on that mm-hmm. and got to know people and got to know the community and that became so full that we didn't have time to volunteer anywhere yeah exactly i you've i'm sure you've thought of this before but when you said um we don't have any friends who are widows, aliens, or orphans, you know, really, if you itemized it, Amina fits all of those because of the massacre of her family across generations that she would, you know, simultaneously be an orphan, a widow, and then immigrate here and and be an alien or, or a foreigner. But something ironic about this hits me that I know a big part of your motivation and Bill's was... Um, to to play the host, you know, for people who are new to our country, new to our culture. The irony of it to me is that God put you in a situation where you needed to be hosted, and then he provided that through Amina. Is that accurate? That That is exactly, yes, that's exactly the truth. And I think that part of the journey has been really beautiful. I, you know, I thought I could teach something. I learn more than I teach. I thought I could give something. I'm given more than I give. Um, and of course, we all know that kind of cliche, you know, I wanted to bless and I've been blessed more, you know, but, but it really has been true. And I think this concept we have of people who are, quote, the least of these, Um, being least in like the resources that really matter is not true. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what we discovered is what's really needed. What we can give is just opportunity, you know? And I would say also that um, the way, I, I mean, we, I continue to make mistakes, but I think that first year, the shock and awe of people's stories, 
um, I would like swoop in, you know, I would get on Facebook and say, Hey, there's a family and they need this, 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 and this. And I would get like, I remember having a garage full of, of toys and diapers and stuff for families. And then I would just go dump it on them and, and they would love it. And then I wouldn't have a relationship with them because that's an obvious, it just is so undignified. You know, to say, here I am, your fairy godmother. And I would always say, this isn't from me. I couldn't afford all this. But yeah, anyway, still. it still was. Yeah. And it just and then one time it wasn't Amina. It was another friend who's from the Congo told me, hey, there's a family. They've just arrived. They're from the Congo where I'm from. Um, they need to be welcomed. And I was like, oh, we'll go over there tonight. But I don't have anything. Like, I didn't have any groceries. I didn't have any any gift to take. I didn't have time. And I said that to him. And he said he was almost appalled that I would say that. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's not what they need. They just need somebody to show up and tell them, hey, we're glad you're here. And so this idea that welcoming people doesn't have to cost a lot in dollars and it doesn't have to... Um, be fancy or you know even super organized you just have to do it um that just became very clear over time so so for those of us who are listening and learning from you um that it's it's a rare person that god will uproot and move someplace like clarkston um for many people there's not a big resettlement community near where they live. Um, but make it practical, make it scalable. I mean, what, what are the biggest needs? And I think, I think you've started down that road already in our conversation, but what do people most need when their world has been rocked by some kind of crisis, some kind of deep trauma, and here they are transplanted in a in a new culture, very often not knowing the language, not understanding the holidays, not, I mean, what do they most need um, for those of us who would, who would want to engage and, and do the right thing? That's such a good question. And I think, and this is my opinion, but I think what people need most is to be seen and heard And then they need this message that we're glad you're here. Like, we're happy to Hmm. see you. There's a a writer that I love, uh, Ronald Rollheiser, and he talks about um, the kind of collective depression in the Western world, and not clinical depression, but just the collective depression. And and what he says is that is the result of a lack of blessing— Like, we don't bless people. In fact, we often curse them, and we start out early doing that. You know, you're too loud. You're too, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. You're bothering me. All those messages we even give children. And and he defines blessing as if I bless you, it means I take delight in you. Hmm. And so I think if we will stop and look people in the eye and take delight in them and choose to be curious about 
the things that matter to them, you know, rather than just feeling like we have to impose ourselves and our ways on them. Um, or fix all their problems. Uh, yes, yes, because we will probably do it wrong. And and I think for us, the only way we knew how to do this, so this doesn't mean everybody needs to change zip codes to do this, but for us, and, and remember, we had this discussion at an inflection point where we were going to move anyway. Um, for us, proximity was important, and I think it still is, like, there was a season of our lives early on when Bill pastored a um, very, very affluent, big white church. You know, he, he didn't pastor. He was on staff. It was early in our marriage. And and I remember at that point realizing I my life is arranged in such a way that I am never in proximity to someone who would be considered poor. Like, never. <laughs> and so how can I change my traffic pattern? just a little bit so that I put myself in a place where I can look a person who isn't just like me in the eye and have some kind of interaction with them. And that's another story for another day, what happened then. But, um, and, and what I ended up doing, I didn't do very well, but I think that that realization that if we're not in proximity to people, at least a little bit, um, if all they are are the our servants, the people who serve us by cleaning our houses or serving us our food, then then we miss out on that opportunity to truly bless people. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that's that's key in someplace becoming your home, and you know, eventually the transitional money runs out, and there has to be employment, and um, you are at the heart of creating something that helps address that issue. Um, Tell us about Refuge Coffee and um, how this has happened and the impact that it's having. Well, so we had lived in Clarkston maybe a year, and, and I would have to say three kind of big ideas. Not They're not all big. One is actually really small, but three ideas converged all at once. The first was, I wish there was a coffee shop that I could walk to. That That's silly, but I love coffee. I love coffee shops. I love meeting people in coffee shops or doing work in them. And at that time, there wasn't one in Clarkston. Um, there were places to go sit and drink coffee, but there was not one. Um, the second thing was... Um, I love this community so much. I want to introduce everybody I know who doesn't live here to everybody I know who does live here, which is kind of a grandiose delusional thing, but I, I'm sort of a born networker anyway. If I meet you for the first time, I immediately think of eight people I want to know you, you know? Mm -hmm. So that urge to, um, invite the world to Clarkston was really strong. And I had years before moving had read that 85% of immigrants to the U.S. have never been inside an American home. And so it just felt like there was a hospitality gap. Like if we could just get to know each other without the agenda of anything, just the way you would in somebody's living room, that would be great. And then the third thing 
um, as we began to pray for the community with others, the thing we heard over and over and over again is that the jobs that are available to refugees are not jobs that lead to flourishing. They're good for, for, for survival, but, you know, the number one job most refugees are offered when they first move. And I don't know if this has changed since we, eight years ago, but, um, is in the chicken processing plant. So it's an hour and a half away. Um, it's decent wages, but, you know, not a lot of room for, for moving up. But one of the main things is you just can't learn English. And then you're gone so much because of the commute. You can't be with your family. And so we would pray a lot about that. But Bill and I both are not business people. Um, I used to say I have zero business acumen. I think I have a little now just because I've had to learn. But but I really didn't have any. And so those this idea of a coffee shop and a coffee shop that could introduce the world there to the world outside of Clarkston began to sort of lean towards this idea of job creation. What if we could create jobs? And then the thing I was beginning to see was, well, you don't just hand somebody a job. You have to prepare them for not only for that job, but hopefully for even a better job in the future. So this idea of what if we could invite the world to Clarkston, add a coffee shop, and also the whole community. And then what if we could provide a few jobs and some job training? And it all kind of came together. And I would talk to Bill about it. And I would talk to people about it in very, very um, passive language, because I didn't at that time think that it was something I could do or should do. But I thought it was, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, this is such a great idea. Somebody needs to do it. And then nobody thought it was as great an idea as I did. And so it was always just sort of this sort of idea floating out there. Then one morning, Bill and I were leading a small prayer group in our living room. And he said, Kitty, tell them your idea. And I was like, no, no. like, you know, that's no, because it's delusional. And I shared it. And it was like the whole room levitated, like everybody went, oh, that you have to do it. And so then I started having conversations about what would it take to do something like that. And then one day, Bill said, you understand that every conversation, the common denominator is you. You're like driving it. So maybe you need to take ownership of it. And I had not done that yet. You know, it was just still like, a, oh, if I talk about it and somebody, we used to say the young hipster ukulele playing wild-eyed missionaries. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible. We love all of them. But that whole group, there were lots of them in Clarkston, and they just seemed way more qualified. Not exactly your profile. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, didn't fit that. Not At least not now. So, um, so eventually, you know, it just became clear to me, this is something that I needed to do. Um, and there are a few steps along the way that were so great. Like I, a friend said, you should get a number one volunteer. Well, by then the couple we had bought our house from in Clarkston lived in Clarkston. So I called her and said, would you be my number one volunteer? And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I have no idea. And she said, okay, you know, like just <laughs> people just buying in with so much abandon. And then, uh, another friend said, if you do this, I think it's going to be 
bigger than you think and harder than you think. So are you sure God wants you to do this? And I was like, well, yeah. And then I thought, well, I should probably make sure. So I took a day to just seek the Lord about it. And what I ended up doing was writing in my journal. By then we had the idea of calling it refuge. Um, I just wrote out every verse I could find that referred to God as a refuge. Wow. And I eventually had to stop writing. Like my my hands couldn't do it anymore. There was so, it was just this preponderance of evidence that God desires to be a refuge. And then over the years as we've begun to see that our real role is welcome. It's that first step of creating refuge that God is a welcomer that, that we're doing something that is so reflective of just who God is, um, that it's hard not to do it, you know? Mm. So I love that story. And to see now God has blessed it. There's, uh, is there one truck plus the coffee shop no. or two? There are two coffee trucks. There are two coffee shops. There are three coffee carts. So we have a, we have, yeah, a lot, a lot going on. And we've been doing this five years. Um, what we do is we offer a full-time living wage job. Job training programs often pay less than minimum right. wage. And we decided we really wanted, it's it's so unjust to not pay a good wage. So we pay a living wage. It's full-time for a year. Uh, and then we provide classroom job training, barista training, ESL training, GED class if that's needed. Um, so over, you know, we started with one trainee full-time and one part-time um, because we decided we wanted to go deep rather than wide. So we didn't want to crank out a lot of people. We wanted to really invest. So in the five years, we've trained now 30 people wow. from 12 different countries. Wow. That's so, that's so <laughs> cool to hear that. And, and you think of the impact on those individual families and, you know, to make it where life here is sustainable now, right? Right, right. Well, and it's and it, it doesn't, quote, work for everybody, but I would say for the most part, I, we had somebody new come in to ask some of our trainees some questions last week, and she said, what is your favorite thing? And three out of the five people she was talking to said, well, it's that this is my family. Wow. So the relational aspect of it, because we just choose to spend so much time, has been amazing. Wow. So, Kitty, I don't know if you realize this or not, but even as you unfolded that whole story, um, there were a couple of times when the Bible, God's Word, really had a big role in your decision-making, whether it was just opening your mind to, wow, there's people God cares about that I don't currently, haven't in my life, to just the great story you told related to refuge that you needed confirmation. You know, is this really? Um, what, what would you say to somebody who right now is listening to this and it could be an area related to a relationship. It doesn't have to be a direct parallel with, with this kind of ministry, but just they're struggling to decide, God, is this something you want me to do or not? Whatever the something is. Um, talk in real clear terms of how the Bible can help 
that man or woman or boy or girl face that decision point? Oh, that's good. Um, well, I have a, a concept, and you could probably help me with this because I don't have a, a particular verse to park this under, but um, this idea that our calling as followers of Jesus is to be to the rest of the world who God is to us, mm. right? So, um, which is why I think people who don't follow Jesus can still do good things because there's this common grace that God is good to everyone, right? He gives sunlight and rain and the ability to love and, you know, children and all those things. And so, but for me, the more I embrace who God is to me, which is incredibly personal and, and intimate, the more equipped I am to then turn around and be that to others. So mm. as I, so this whole process has uncovered a lot of things in me that I didn't want to see, but God is a God of grace. He's, you know, he forgives, he um, provides, he offers shelter. Like this whole idea of God being a refuge, not once have I run to him and has he not taken me in when I've mm -hmm. needed him, you know, not once. That's and beautiful. so I think that, you know, I think asking God, show me who you are to me and now show me how to be that to others. And sometimes it's the things that God does the most personally and deeply for us that turn into the things we can do for others, right? Mm. So that's why the world is full of people doing very different things because, you know, I think my husband and I talk about, you know, the stories of Jesus's encounters with people. You know, there are certain ones that resonate with me because of who I am. And there are certain ones that resonate more with him because of who he mm -hmm. is. So he feels Jesus saying, unbind him to Lazarus to the, you know, um, more deeply than I do, because he tends to be more bound by restraint. And I'm not very restrained. <laughs> and so what I feel is when it says that the, the, the gathering demoniac, that he was restrained and in his right mind, that he was like calmed, you know, I wow. feel like that's what the Holy Spirit does for me often. It's like this kind of touching my arm and saying, no, it's okay. You don't have to erupt over that, you know, like calms me. So I think, um, that might be too specific, but this idea of really listening through the scriptures and saying, God, who are you to me? You know, how have you cared for me? How have you loved me? How have you proven to me that you're alive and well today um, and you're at work in my life? How have you done that? All right. That isn't just for me. That's for the people that you put me in contact with. I think that's you've articulated that beautifully. And you know, if you wanted a verse to file that under, I, I think it's something as simple as we love because he first loved us, you know, and because he's reconciled us, he's made us right with him. We can now help reconcile other people to him, but also other people to each other. And, um, you know, in so many ways, you and Bill are just incarnating that you're living that out. And um, that's why I wanted to introduce our network 
Kitty, to you and Bill and your story. If, if our listeners wanted to find out more about Refuge Coffee, what's the easiest way for them to do that? Well, it's all the same. Our website is refugecoffeeco.com. On social media, we're Refuge Coffee Co. Our website, you know, the first time you visit, you'll have an opportunity to sign up for a, an e-newsletter that we send out usually once a week. But um, and you, that way you can kind of hear from us what's going on. Um, yeah, those are really the best ways. So refugecoffeeco.com would be a, a great starting point. And um, Kitty, um, you know, we love you and Bill. And I'm just so proud of you and so appreciative that you said yes to God. And you, I mean, he's been a part of your life for decades. Um, and, you know, you've been, you've been great parents and all that. But to at this point in life, say yes to such a huge life-changing adventure to you but then to be able to say and we thought we were helping others it's nothing like what he's doing in our life that's such an exciting story of of where your story and god's story intersected and lives are being changed for all of eternity thank you for sharing your story with us today oh thank you thank you so much it's just such a treat to be here and I love the chance to um, talk about the joy that listening to the scriptures, you know, with an open heart can bring. So, yeah, thanks. Well, that concludes this second episode of Step Into the Story. Uh, We've got some other ones coming up soon and um, hope that you can share this with your friends and that you can also um, take the step to subscribe. So whenever we drop a new conversation, you'll be there to participate in it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K, T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.